Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we will be reading the first 15 verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may be well with you, and that you may and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in, sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities you did not build, and houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And this ends our reading of God's word for this morning. Congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, love is fundamental to any relationship, isn't it? The closer the relationship is, the deeper the love will be. We have a general love for people. God commands us to love our neighbor. The love you have for the stock clerk at the grocery store is probably very different from the love you have for your family at home. I hope it's different. Your family is much more closely related to you And so there's a much deeper love at play there. Well, you have one relationship that's closer than any other relationship, and that is your relationship with God. In the Garden of Eden, when God created man, he made man in his image. And God is love. So he created man to live in a loving relationship with his God. And when Adam committed his first sin... He destroyed that loving relationship. We know God stepped in to restore it by promising a redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Well, Christ's redemption from sin, that is pictured for us when God brought Israel 
out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage and slavery, which is what sin is, a bondage. Shortly after God brought them out, he found that their love toward him was lacking. He said, those guilty of many infidelities, Israel, they would not enter the promised land. Now, the passage that we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this occurs 40 years later. Israel has been wandering in the wilderness 40 years, and they're again in a similar position. They're at the entrance to the promised land. And now the question that comes up is a question of love again. You can see the fathers did not enter. What will happen with this generation? So after recounting their history, Moses is at a turning point here. He's talked about their wanderings in the wilderness and how God took care of them. And he says, therefore, hear, O Israel. And this is a very important crux. It's the very important matter that's before them, this matter of love for God. The Jews consider this a very important uh, passage. Jesus himself underlined that importance when he quoted it, when he was asked about what's the greatest commandment in the law, it's this passage. So we want to give attention to it. It should engage our full thoughts and attention this morning. And we want to find out more about this love. Where does it come from? What does it involve? What's the result of this love? This is such an important passage. If it is so important, do we want to leave these questions untouched or do we just want to talk about love in a vague way? So this is what we will look at. We'll follow the text. And in doing so, we'll look at some of the answers to these questions. Our theme is a singular love for God. And we'll look at uh, verse 4, verse 5, and verses 6 and following. Our points will be the object of the love, the nature of the love, and the nurture of that love for God. Well, the object of the love is the one from whom love comes. We spoke of that when God created man. God is love. He created man to love him. Love comes from God. Love is in response to God by way of creation, also by way of uh, redemption. So the object of love is the one who is actually the foundation of love. But what does it say here in verse 4? Hear, O Israel. It says it twice. The importance of that cannot be overstated. A command to hear is not just to hear with your ears. It's a command to respond with the whole of your life. And so we don't want to just skip over the first thing that God says when he says, hear, O Israel. We want to pay attention to it. It's going to be important for understanding what is to follow. And it's important for understanding God, whom we are to love. It's not the easiest to, uh, to translate this verse. Um, we have a, a good capturing of it here. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's saying that the Lord is God, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. We have uh, those three things to think about. So we'll just work through that. The Lord here is the covenant name of God. 
It's the name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. It's a name he always had, but it's a name that's especially reserved for when God would remember his old covenant promises and respond in faithfulness to fulfill those promises. And when he appeared to Moses, it was because he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would give them the land of Canaan. And now God was going to act on that promise, bring Israel out of Egypt, bring them into the promised land. And this is the nature of God. He is a God who keeps his promises. That promise in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would deliver mankind. Well, he delivered on that promise, didn't he? The Lord himself took on a human nature. He died on the cross to redeem us from sin. So there's a reason we call Jesus Christ the Lord as well. He is the Lord. He is the same Lord. He is God our Savior. And when we look at what's being said here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we should not think this is anyone other than our Lord, Jesus Christ, who is speaking, our Savior. And verse 4 says, the Lord is God. He's not just a local, uh, partial, superior person. He demonstrated in Egypt, he has power over all the gods of Egypt. They were like nothing to him. He could easily snuff them out. And in their wilderness wanderings, the other nations were not a problem for him. He is God. But he goes further. He says he is our God. And the thing about relationships is interesting. Who owns who in a relationship when we use a possessive? You say, these are my children. Your children say, these are my parents. There's a reciprocal relationship there. And so when we say the Lord is our God, we're also saying we are the Lord's. And we're acknowledging the Lord made us his by redeeming us, by taking us to himself. And this is what God did with the nation of Israel. He took them out of Egypt. He took ownership of them. He made them his own. I will be your people. I will be your God. You will be my people. He, he, uh, instead of the yoke of Egypt, I will make your yoke easy and your burden light. I'm going to carry you the way a father carries his son, as Deuteronomy 1, uh, verse 31 said. He is our God, the Lord, our God. Now that word our is important here too because who is our? Who is standing in front of Moses? Well, the people from 40 years old and upward They were there. They were brought out of Egypt. They were infants and children and teenagers at the time. They were there. They were gathered to the Lord. The Lord made his covenant uh, with them. What about the people under 40 years old? These were people born in the wilderness. They weren't brought out of Egypt directly. The Lord is our God. All of these people, through God's wonderful provision, his covenant extends through to the children 
even though these children were not born yet. As we read in Deuteronomy 5, verse 2, God made the covenant with us in Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. He says, I'm not talking about our fathers. I'm talking about us because God extends his covenant to the children as well. And we'll see that that is important. So children belong to the people of God as well. God is there to provide for their needs. And what is their most fundamental need? To have their sin taken away, to have it forgiven, to be delivered. And that deliverance is by faith in him. He is their God. They must believe in him. The last point in this verse is that the Lord is one. Now, this is saying more than just numerically that the Lord is one. You count up how many gods there are, and there's only one God. There's, there's more than that. The God who was the God over in Egypt, he's also the God in this place, isn't he? There's one God. The God of 40 years ago, he's still God today. There's one God. God is God in every time, in every place. When you think about the oneness of God, it's easy to see. He stands above space. He stands above time. He created space and time for his own glory. It all belongs to him. And he has purposes that are beyond space and time. Purposes to bring a people to salvation, to bring glory to himself. And what this means, the unity of God, what it implies is that if he makes you his one day, He's not going to forsake you the next day. It means you can't run away from God. And he's as much your God on Friday night, wherever you are, as when you were in church on Sunday morning. So we are limited. We are changeable. We can't really comprehend how this is. We have interactions. Things change for us. Things go up and down, and they go sideways sometimes. God is unchanging. He's steadfast. He's immovable. So we don't know exactly how it is we can relate to a God who is like this. How can he be one? And yet it's meaningful. When he comes and he acts in my life, I can pray to him. He responds to me. How can that be? We can't fathom it. And this is because God, his being is so much higher than we can think or that we can imagine. And we are led then to worship the simple fact of the unity of God. Theologians have dwelt upon it um, very much and over centuries, and it always leads them to worship, and it should lead us to worship as well. His oneness, his singleness of love and purpose toward you through Christ is such a beautiful thing. It's your unchanging comfort in this life. The rock who is God, who is one. Because he's one and he's taken hold of you in Christ, then there are these unchanging truths. You have an assurance of God's eternally good purposes towards you and an assurance of what your calling is. There's no confusion 
what your hope is. There's no confusion or change because it is in God himself who doesn't change. Well, now we come to our second point. The foundational point is the object of our love. But now we come to the nature of love. And this is a response to that founding uh, person of love, God himself. The command that follows is based on the oneness of God himself, based on the oneness of the God who redeemed you. He's always the same, always your savior and redeemer at every time and place. That means there is no other savior or redeemer for you. So his oneness of saving purpose and provision for you calls for a oneness of love for him. And that means the love reserved for him should not be shared with any other. It needs to be unified, needs to be singly dedicated to him. Psalm 86, 11 has this prayer, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Don't let my heart be divided between you and something else. That's what it's getting at. We could think of the opposite in James. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The double-minded man, he has two minds on the matter of loving God. When he's in church, oh yeah, I love God. When he's alone with his phone, looking at pictures, he shouldn't, off in some corner. He loves an idol. A unified love for God. That's what this passage is calling for. And that's what Deuteronomy calls for again and again. A singleness of devotion to the Lord your God. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are like a commentary on verse 5. Verse 12 says, Beware that you don't forget the Lord. Verse 13, Fear Him. Serve Him. Take oaths in His name. There's only one. Verse 14, Don't go after other gods. Don't go after idols. So the contrast is between the Lord and idols. So the command, I'll put the emphasis, the command is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. It's primarily dealing with the question of whom do you love? Do you love the Lord or do you love an idol? When it's saying with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, It's dealing with every aspect of your being, but the question is, whom do you love? Okay, don't misunderstand this. With all your strength doesn't mean you have used your muscles as much as you can and they are worn out at the end of the day. Otherwise, you haven't loved God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying as much as you use your strength, your heart, your soul, it's got to be devoted to God not shared with an idol. And let me deal with something else too. 
It's easy to think in order to love God with all your heart and soul and strength, you have to push other things out. And this is what happened a few centuries after Christ. People went out into the wilderness. I don't need a family. That's interfering with my love for God. I don't need work. That's interfering. But that's not what this is calling for. We look at verse 2. It's talking about training up children, training up grandchildren. The Lord obviously is not saying, leave your families behind. Leave your work behind, which you need to support yourself and your family. The point is not getting rid of this so that I can do that. With all your heart and soul and strength is not about getting rid of all of the blessings and the duties of ordinary life. It's about being consistent. Who is your God? We can see this is the meaning in different places, just the language. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. We can see it's talking uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 13. The first four verses is talking about a prophet. Here's a prophet, seems to check out as a good prophet. Things he says come true. Uh, But now he says, let's go worship an idol. They're not supposed to go. Why not? The Lord's testing you to see whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's the same language as in Deuteronomy 6 here. Don't do the idol thing. Love the Lord. Also back... um, Deuteronomy 4.23, Israel's warned, don't forget him and start making idols. If they do, God is going to scatter them, but he'll bring them back if they love him with all their heart and all their soul. That's what this expression is referring to, getting rid of the idols. King Jehoshaphat, he got rid of the idols. No one loved the Lord, like, uh, the Lord his God like him, right? He was someone who turned, I shouldn't say no one, but... He turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul is what scripture says. So this is the language of Deuteronomy 6. Someone who doesn't uh, take the Lord, the love for the Lord his God and share it with an idol, no matter how persuasively someone comes and encourages him to do it, he's not to give in to that. He's not to divide his love and allegiance between the Lord and other gods. There's only one God, so... There must be a unity in the love for that God. He covers every time, every space a person is, every aspect of his existence. So this is talking about a unified, consistent love for God, a love with integrity, without hypocrisy, singleness of mind and heart. So this is the nature of the love for God, that it's unified. But we can look at that nature in a different way. (coughs) Excuse me. In the New Testament, Jesus taught that someone who is forgiven much loves much. He pointed to the woman washing his feet with her hair. She was forgiven much. She loves much. And he could ask anyone, even those who didn't believe in him, who's going to love more, the person who's forgiven More or the person who's forgiven less? And the answer is obvious. 
that the person who's forgiven more loves more. It's natural. Well, think about what is natural for the people of God who've been forgiven everything. Would it not be natural when you've been redeemed from death and destruction to love the Lord with a consistent, heartfelt love and devotion that never fails? Of course, that would be natural, wouldn't it? If you look at verse 5, you'll notice this is a command. What does God command his people to love him? Why does he command his people to do the most natural thing in the world? Why would that be necessary? Well, the problem is God's redeemed people are still sinners. God presupposes that. He understands it. They can go astray like lost sheep. And the problem can be so serious they forget, where does my salvation lie? So God drives you back to himself. He drives you back for your good. He only is your savior. And this is God's lead in in verse three, that this is for your good. This is why I give you these commandments. I'm bringing you back to myself because if you turn to idols, there's no salvation there. There's nothing good for you. Nothing that can bless you. Nothing that can give honor to God with those idols. This is why you have a command to love the Lord. When Jesus taught there's only one way to the Father through himself, what was he saying? Why did he say that? So no one would deceive himself into thinking that idols would do them any good. It's only in himself. You need to love the one God and Savior. And the sad reality is, when you examine yourself, what do you find? A divided heart. A divided mind. Not the single unity that's devoted to God. The sin nature, the old self, the one that loves idols, the one that wants to forget God, he wants to take over. He needs to be denied. He needs to be told no. He needs to be killed off so the new self can live without competition, without division. That's what is needed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. That's what the command is calling you to. So this commandment is a call, really, to spiritual battle. And that battle is against yourself. God has given the means to win this battle. The Spirit of Christ works in you. He helps you to identify, what are my idols? He will help you this week. The Spirit of Christ reminds you of the blood of Christ by which you're cleansed from your sin. He leads you to ask for forgiveness. And as Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, he'll circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul. This is the work of the Spirit. He works in you to find ways to put those idols away. He he works in you to find a way to cultivate a renewed love for God in their place. He works in you to plead for help from God as you do this. He will help you to love the Lord. He will help you to have the natural response that should come from anyone who is greatly loved. And congregation, don't be discouraged because the Lord is one. He didn't make you his one day to leave you the next day as soon as you're in trouble. He's not going to abandon you. He's one. His ears are always open to your cries. And through the word, he calls you to return to him, put away the idols so that it may be well with you because he has rich forgiveness for you. He can free you from them and help you walk in a good way. He loved you first. He continues to love you. So this command is critical. And we can see loving God is critical. It's not just an add-on. This is focusing us on our salvation. Read the New Testament. The promises of life are for those who love God. James 1 verse 12. There's a crown of life which God has promised to all who love him. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God. 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for them that love him. The promises of life are for those who love the Lord. And you can understand why that is. Loving God means holding on to the only one who has life, the one who gave you life. It's really a part of what faith is. Anyone who turns away from him to idols will find those idols do not, and in fact, they cannot deliver on their promises. So don't consider the idols. Say no to the idols. Instead, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Well, now we want to know, how do I hold on in love for God? If love for God is so important, how do I hold on? Just as God's people need to be told to love God, they also need to be told how to love God, how to keep on loving God. So we move from the object of our love, past the nature of our love, now to the nurture of our love for God. This is all about the teaching of love for God. A love for God will result in a love for his word. And we know this is true in 
our relationships. When we love someone, we like to hear what that person has to say. We like to hear what God has to say. And we can go further. We can say we need to hear what God has to say. God is God. How do we love God? What do we do? I mean, you might have an inkling. How do you love God? We're affected by sin, and besides, he's God. How do we love him? Well, we can have a sense, but it can be confusing. So we need to hear what he has to say. And we follow his directions for loving him. And those directions are commandments by a different name. He reveals how to love him in commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In Deuteronomy as well, that association is there over and over again. And so in verses 6 to 9, the Lord directs his people to fill their lives with his word, with the things he says. Verse 6 These words shall be on your heart. To love the Lord your God with your heart means you need the word in your heart. Your heart must be instructed in how to love God. There's no other way. And notice he says these words. These are words. He calls for you to take in the words, to meditate on the words he speaks, to think about the meaning of the words he speaks, to act upon the words he speaks. So this is self-teaching, self-instruction. You learn love for God by learning the words God speaks and applying them. We all like a minister who will apply the word really well, but let's acknowledge the limitations. There's only so much a pastor can do for you. He can't help you to think over the sermon when it's done. He can't help you memorize the word. He can't do that for you. He can't meditate on the word for you. He can't implant a love for God in your heart. He can't nurture that love well. He can nurture, but there's only so much he can do. He can't give you a love for God. He can't embed that word in your life. That is for you to do with the help of God. And it's very important to do because how is this teaching going to go to the next generation? It is through you, through your efforts. The Lord is one. He doesn't change over time. And he doesn't want his people fundamentally to change over time from one generation to the next. They should understand how God is their savior, that they are his and that they need to love and serve him. And so in verse seven, you shall diligently teach your children the word because the word belongs to the children as much as it belongs to the parents. Children need someone who will act in their best interests to help them understand the word, to have the word presented to them at their level. So parents, you can be very glad for the teaching ministry in the church and catechism classes. You can be glad for Christian school and for teachers. We're thankful 
that they do that work. But the point here is the home life. School teachers and catechism teachers, they are not there when your family wakes up, when it goes to bed, when it's sitting down in the house, when it's walking down the road. That's not who's there. You're there. And that means, parents, you need to speak of these things to your children to fill their lives with the word. Who has the best interests of your children at heart? Is it the pastor? Is it the school teacher? Their parents. In the wisdom of God, he's given this task to the parents and they can use these other things, but parents, this is your job. Who is responsible to teach the next generation how to love God? It's their parents. Think about Moses and the people he's speaking to. Aside from Joshua and Caleb, who's the oldest person in that congregation? 60 years old. The parents died young in the wilderness. They weren't able to enter the promised land and now there's a new generation. They'd seen their parents die. He says, now you teach your children. Departing from the Lord has consequences. Who would care more? Of course the parents don't want to see their children perish. And we see again, the Lord has to command us to do the thing that should be the most natural thing to do. Because we're sinners. Teaching means putting a fine edge on something. Being able to make distinctions, being able to clarify what needs clarifying, being able to answer questions. And parents, that means some things for you. It means you need to be learners. We all have different capacities, but you need to be learners for yourself, right? Putting the word on your heart, but also for your children so that you will have what you need to teach them. You need to have those times that it speaks of here. Wakey time, sleepy time, sit time, walk time. And you need to speak about these things. We have our favorite things. The Lord says, speak about these things. You need to be somewhat systematic. And knowing our fallen nature, you need to have some system. This is our time for sitting down as a family, going through God's word, seeing what it says, preferably even understanding, discussing, going over it. This is what elders are looking for. It's so often recommended by them. Well, children, there's something for the boys and girls here too because your parents have this job to teach you God's word. And what does that make you, boys and girls? It makes you 
those who need to learn from your parents. And you can help them. You can be interested in what your parents teach you. You can listen carefully. You can make sure you're not trying to cut the time short and say, I'd rather go play outside. They're doing God's important work when they're teaching you. Understand that. Try to understand why is this so important that God thinks I need to hear this. Try to understand that God is laying before you a way for your sins to be forgiven, a way to live with no regrets in it. A beautiful, wonderful way to live. The passage goes on, families, to talk about the word on the doorposts, on the gates, binding the word to your hands as a frontlets between your eyes. What is this? This is all just talking about not getting away from the word of God. Try to order your life so you cannot get away from it. Whatever you're doing, whatever your eyes see, whatever your hands do, when you go out to do something, you're passing through those gates. The last thing is the word. When you come back home on your doorposts, the first thing you see, the word. Let the word be filling your life. Because what is the danger? According to verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord. The danger is forgetting. Well, what if you fail? What if your children fail? The Lord has commands for that as well. He commands you, repent, believe the gospel. He doesn't let you sit in your sin and wallow in it. He says there's a cure. There's a remedy. Believe the gospel. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Find forgiveness in the blood of Christ and start again. The Lord is not the taskmaster from Egypt that sends you back and says, now give me twice as much with half as much to work with. The Lord forgives graciously, freely. He loves you. And he's calling out of you the response of love to him. And he's giving you the way to do that. There's only one other thing here. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he vividly showed his power to save. He gave signs and wonders. And that generation saw those signs and wonders. But they forgot them. How quickly they forgot them. They needed to remind themselves of God's power to save. And congregation, the greatest sign, the greatest wonder is when he laid your sins on Jesus Christ and took them to the cross 2,000 years ago. We were not there. And you know, the ongoing generations of Israel, they were not there in Egypt. They had nothing to remember but the word that told them all about it.
And you have the word that tells you all about it. The greatest sign of wonder is the salvation given by Jesus on the cross. It says, bind this to your hands. Everything you do, let it be there. Let it drive what you do. Let it remind you while you're doing it of the freedom that God has given for you by taking your sins away because your hands, they are now no longer working for the taskmasters of Egypt. They've been set free to serve the Lord your God because Christ has died for you. Love him. Serve him. Be dedicated to him. Singly devoted to him. Whatever your hands find to do, let it be in love for God. Well, may the Lord so build us up. May he draw out of us that love for him. May he help us fill our lives from generation to generation with his word so that he will receive unending praise from us because he is worthy of it. He's our faithful deliverer and savior. He calls us to love him and there's no reason that we shouldn't. He's loved us, congregation. Love him through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have revealed yourself as love. God is love. And we distort that, we diminish that, we think less of it than we ought. We can see that as we stand in front of your love displayed. And we look at how our love for you pales from what it ought to be. We confess we are sinners. We are ungrateful. We are people whose minds do get divided, who do get distracted, people who do forget And we pray that you will not leave us alone. That you will send your spirit to continually draw us back to yourself. To continually teach us how to put away our idols. And continually build up and nurture in us the love for you that ought to be there. Because you're worthy of our love and our devotion And it's very humbling to us that this is what you seek, is the love of your creatures. Lord, you've given us such a wonderful place that we can be called your children. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as you're pure, your scripture says. Oh Lord, help us to do that. We want to do this. Help us by your grace, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.